Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Irregardless. I hate to even say it out loud. But it's a word that, though noted as non-standard, appears in every English language dictionary. Through its repeated usage, this overcorrection became, at the very least, worth documenting as a lexicographic phenomenon and, God help us, borderline acceptable. Irregardless of your feelings about grammar, a far more insidious evolution takes place with ideas, particularly when these conceptual malaprops are echoed across mass media. In the August issue, Rebecca Panovka writes about the misuse of Hannah Arendt's philosophy during Donald Trump's rise to power and presidency. Though it may be hard to recall now, this was a heady time when writers argued that Trump was driving the country into totalitarianism with his lies, accusations that were supposedly supported by cherry-picked quotes from Arendt's famous book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. I spoke with Panovka about the true meaning of Arendt's varied and sometimes flawed ideas, the historical factors that influenced her thinking, and the perils of keyword searching for meaning. You open your essay by discussing Arendt's disdain for fact-checking and for, quote, phony scientificality. And this is, of course, bitterly ironic, but it points to her ideas about rational truth, which is like a math problem versus factual truth, which requires a belief in experts and eyewitnesses. Could you talk us through how she arrived at these different types of truths? Sure. I I picked this opening because I thought it was funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That she hated being fact-checked just as much as everyone else. Um, And that she tried to sort of extrapolate from her hatred of being fact-checked a sort of philosophy about phony scientificality or to connect it to her larger body of thought when really she was she was mostly not enjoying the process. But there, yeah, I think the distinction between rational truth and factual truth has to sort of be seen in light of her response to the backlash to her coverage of Adolf Eichmann and the Eichmann trial. She published Eichmann in Jerusalem, which was a report initially for The New Yorker, later a book about what she saw as basically a show trial in Israel of, of Adolf Eichmann, who'd been, who'd been, you know, captured by Mossad agents and put on trial. And she wrote a report about this trial and tried to really judge this guy. And in her view, uh, he was an example of maybe her most famous concept, the banality of evil. And uh, he was sort of someone who had been trying to figure out logistical solutions, figure out that he was one of the architects of the final solution. But he was really sort of a logistics guy. He was a cog in a larger machine. He was you know, at least as she judged him in this trial, he was sort of an ordinary guy. He was not this embodiment of evil that she was expecting or that she wanted him to be. And she tried to puzzle through this. And she she thought that he was basically someone who had tried to figure out logistical solutions while neglecting to judge for himself the rightness or wrongness of those solutions. And there was this massive backlash to her reporting. And in, in her view, she had reported facts that people didn't want to hear, that contradicted the sort of image people wanted to portray of Eichmann and of the Holocaust and how it had happened. And that fact-checking was sort of marshaled against her because people didn't want to hear what she had to say. 
Now, there were entire books that were written fact-checking the claims in this report. Uh, she was just relentlessly fact-checked, sometimes kind of factually inaccurately. She thought always factually inaccurately. She thought she had reported the facts 100% correctly, which, which isn't quite true. But she thought she had reported the facts completely and that her adversaries or people who didn't want to hear those facts were bringing in what we might call alternative facts <laughs> to discredit her. So the article that the, this is a long-winded way of saying that the distinction between rational truth and factual truth come out of a desire to draw a comparison between herself and sort of ancient philosophers. So she wants to get to sophistry and, and what was wrong with sophistry. So in, in ancient times, in her telling, philosophy was under threat because it was countered with sophistry or rhetoric, which could discredit philosophical truths with sort of BS and make the philosophical truths look like they were just another opinion. And so philosophy is or the kind of good, worthwhile philosophical truths are true because they're derived from rational truths. They're derived from things that we can all, that, that, are, that are self-evident uh, and that must be true. Like two plus two equals four is her definition of rational truth. So if rational truth is the basis of philosophical truth, then political thought uses as its basis factual truth. Mm -hmm. So factual truth is what we need in order to extrapolate big political views. And if we have different factual truths or if factual truth is discredited, then political thoughts can also, be, can also be discredited as like just another opinion. So she thought that what she had found, to take it back to Eichmann, she had drawn this big conclusion about the banality of evil and drawn lots of other conclusions as well. And they were being countered because people wanted to dispute her facts. And she thought this was dangerous. And she thought it's important to have a, a shared set of facts so that we can all disagree in the political arena with, with the same background. And yeah, so this is a bit incongruous with her feelings about being fact-checked. <laughs> well, she, she, was re she got canceled for writing the Eichmann piece and then she was like, no, let me, let's, let's get something straight here. <laughs> exactly. Let's, let's go back to Plato about why I shouldn't be canceled. <laughs> and another thing that is really important to keep in mind when discussing rent her ideas because again she's she's so widely cited when this comes up is that there is no universally agreed upon definition of totalitarianism and so it's commonly used as a value judgment on a government or a leader instead of i don't know an actual description of their their system of government right yeah. so can you discuss how a rent defined the term and to what extent her conception of it was influenced by the period she was living through. And I'm not just saying like Stalinism and Nazism, but things like brainwashing, for instance, which was a very pronounced fear that was kind of, you know, used to explain how the Germans had been, you know, brainwashing, the Germans had been brainwashed, that the Soviets could brainwash people and therefore the CIA should invest lots of time and destroy a lot of lives with like programs like MKUltra so that they could also brainwash people in the name of freedom. Yeah, sure. So I think she was highly influenced by the period she was living through. She was writing a book about Hitler and Nazism and the factors that had laid the sort of intellectual or social groundwork for Hitler to rise to power. And, you know, the first section of this book the or that became The Origins of Totalitarianism the first two sections were about imperialism and anti-Semitism. And 
she was essentially trying to draw a genealogy that led to totalitarianism in part three, or to Nazism in part three. Then she found herself writing this book in the U.S. during the Cold War, and there was this huge appetite to knit together Hitler and Stalin and find a sort of encompassing system or definition that could be mapped onto both of them, or that, that could explain what had happened in both pretty different contexts, and to sort of reposition the USSR, which had been on the same side in World War II, to move the USSR onto the opposite side, the side of Nazism and pure evil. And so I think she sort of retroactively adds in Russia to part three. But Russia isn't really knitted throughout the book in the same way. Anyway, the definition she gives that she thinks can encompass both of these movements, but that really relates in, in this book more to Nazi Germany, a totalitarian movement is a movement that positions itself as the endpoint of history, the destiny of a particular people or, or race. And to enforce that fiction, the totalitarian movement requires this constant state of motion and development and growth. And to maintain that constant motion, it needs both external expansion and internal terror with the goal of total world domination. Mm -hmm. Well, could describe a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Could. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, brainwashing, I think... Brainwashing enters into Arendt in kind of a weird way. She uses it as a a metaphor sometimes. She was definitely influenced by the sort of widespread fear of brainwashing. And the idea that, yeah, that that German citizens had been brainwashed. And I I think what she was most struck by in Germany, having lived through it herself or part of it herself, is that people had one moral code one day. And then this movement rose to power and the entire moral code that had existed before collapsed. And then as soon as the Nazis lost power, it was as if that new moral code evaporated overnight and they just went back to the one they'd had before. That was something she studied throughout her work in a lot of different ways. And she was attentive to as well, the idea that the CIA was maybe brainwashing people or or the idea that brainwashing could happen in other contexts. But I'm not not sure how much it it influenced. Oh, no, no. I was just saying it's like brainwashing was just part of the zeitgeist totally yeah that this is when we go back and sort of try to parse these things i mean you could say that like fake news and like russian infiltration is kind of like a a modern day form of brainwashing but it's also totally different so it's just a modern fear that that kind of works in the same way that the fear of brainwashing worked at that time exactly but there needs to be a distinction is that you know nobody literally thinks that this happens the way people thought it happened in the 1950s. There are some crucial differences. And again, when writers are citing or trying to deal with her work, they there seems to be a tendency not to consider sort of these, these factors that were just part of intellectual life at the time. And also political and you know, cultural, all this, all this different stuff that really shaped her philosophy. And you note in the piece that while she was working on the origins of totalitarianism, as you'd say, one of the most misused and abused books of the Travera, Arendt referred to it as the imperialism book, which is, as you said before, it's what one third of the book is about. And can you discuss her views on imperialism 
which again, this was this was being written at the beginning of the end of the British Empire. And, you know, if those critiques about imperialism relate to our current moment, because when she's talking about nationalism and like the pan-Slavic movement, it's like, well, we don't have a pan-Slavic movement now, but we yeah. have there are parallels and, you know, not because everything has to be relate to the current day to be worth talking about, but still there seems to be something there let's say yeah a lot of that section is about the nation state and the development of the nation state and its collapse and and i think a lot of it is is useful historically more than in application to present times i think her description of imperialism and how it functions and how it led into totalitarianism or led into the logic of totalitarianism is, is really worth reading because it allows us to get a better sense of how we arrived at the world we have now, you know, a very you know, globalized world. And I'm not sure there's, there are sort of direct analogies between what she's talking about, you know, like Cecil Rhodes and Lawrence of Arabia and uh, stuff that's going on now. But I think the most relevant thing, the most relevant, useful idea she brings up is that imperialism, like totalitarianism, as I was just saying, relies on endless growth. And this is a function of capitalist thinking and the development of capitalism, mm -hmm. which only works if you keep growing. Your company can't have growth this year and not next, or a lot of growth this year and shrink next year. That doesn't work. You have to have more growth every year, growth on growth on growth. And I think that, that idea can be useful as we think about globalization, but also as we think about the environment yeah. and why endless growth is in fundamental conflict with the idea of finite resources. Yeah, or labor supply, sort of fairness. A lot of things <laughs> seem to be in uh, conflict with that. But no, I mean, it, it is interesting that that's not really what the part of the work that's being discussed. Instead, yeah. it's sort of these cherry-picked quotes from parts about totalitarianism. And when she's talking about totalitarianism, yeah, it's just sometimes it just seems like somebody's back in college, they need to make their paper sound smart. So they're just taking these large quotes from a better writer and be like, check it out. Totally. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. <laughs> but, but also that act of cherry picking is, it really kind of doesn't work because the way Rent's writing is constructed is unique because rather than a single narrative where ideas you know build on each other, uh, Arendt uses these concentric circles of contrast to make arguments, and it's often up to the reader to figure out how these things are interconnected. Do you suspect that's in part why her writing has been so wildly misunderstood, or is it, you know, is it just something dumber? You know that it's like it's called totalitarianism. I have to use it in my argument about totalitarianism, even though I really probably don't have a good handle on what that means. Yeah, I mean, I think. Having a title like The Origins of Totalitarianism is not something we can underestimate as a reason that Arendt became so <laughs> popular the past few years. Yes. You know, and I understand it. I was, um, I was in a grad seminar on the origins of totalitarianism during the Trump election in 2016. And I completely understand the impulse to want to connect the book to what was happening. You know, we were at that point being told by the most sort of respected people in public life that we needed to resist, um, that we needed to organize something like a resistance. The World War II metaphors were 
everywhere. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I went to do my assigned reading on the origins of totalitarianism, hoping it would be relevant. And then sort of as I got into it, it was like, okay, this is actually not that relevant and not very useful. You'd sort of get to a, a sentence and you'd be like, oh, yes, relevant. And then a couple of sentences later, it, the connection would fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then what I guess surprised me and spurred the piece is that the professional commentators all came to the opposite conclusion over the next few years <laughs> and seemed to find this text endlessly relevant. And I, I, I've yeah, spent a lot of time puzzling over how that happens. I do think, I think the reason she's easy to misunderstand or to misapply is that she has these sentences that will seem really clear and seem like they're saying a particular thing. And then if you read them in the context of the paragraph or the page or the chapter, they actually mean something slightly different or more complicated. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that she uses ordinary terms very idiosyncratically, uh, terms like world or public or uh, work. Things like that will mean something slightly, or action, will mean something slightly different than the ordinary way we use them. Heidegger does this too, and a lot of this comes from Heidegger. A lot of her terminology are sort of related to, to the way he uses these words. But nobody bothers to cherry pick Heidegger's quotes as sort of sources of eternal wisdom because Heidegger was a Nazi. Right. <laughs> and had, had politics, so we're not going to bother with him. And I think a lot of the other philosophers who are equally hard to understand or who are equally complicated have fewer sentences that are easy to straightforwardly understand. Mm -hmm. Or when they do, like, I don't know, I, I, I've been in philosophy seminars where people try to use Heidegger as sort of a self-healthy thing or Nietzsche or something. Um, we'll try to, like, skew them into almost inspirational quotes. Well, people try to do that with Beckett, with, like, the feel yeah. harder, feel better. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, what? what? <laughs> no, people do it with all of these guys. Arendt is slightly different because she... Hers aren't really inspirational quotes. They're, they're more sort of political. She's a bit more political and therefore easy to apply to things rather than just sort of use as a, as a mantra. Right. You can't put it on a mug, unfortunately. I bet they're, I bet they're Hannah Arendt mugs. I mean, of course. There's everything mugs. It's, you know, get on Zazzle, do your thing. This podcast is not sponsored by Zazzle. However, it is a thing. You can get whatever, really whatever you want. I mean, again, it's like it's part of the sort of the surfate of information of modern life, of digital life, where you can sort of do a keyword search and you can find, okay, well, maybe this part of this thing works for my argument and you're not really dealing with the full text. But for someone who wants to really deal with her writing, you know, it hasn't really read her before. How would you advise them to approach her style? Because, I mean, it's clear that, you know, this is one of the great books of political philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I think you can read. I, I think she's readable. It's not impossible to read her. You just have to read her slowly. You can't kind of skip over the earlier parts where she's explaining how she means certain words to be used and and expect to understand how they're used later. And she doesn't always straightforwardly define her terms, but I think just just read her carefully. You can't selectively pick and choose. If you're reading the chapter, read the whole chapter, which I know, you know easier said than done because there's some complicated parts. I, yeah, I think just being slow and careful is the best strategy with any of these thinkers and not sort of getting so excited about one particular sentence that you neglect the rest. Well, that's a hard thing, right? 
everything should be done slow and carefully and we're not really given time to do that anymore. Maybe we could take a minute to think in a more general way about this common journalistic practice of finding thinkers who are somehow prescient about current events and then mining their work for insights. Because the rent quote that you end the piece with is relevant. Quote, no matter how much we may be capable of learning from the past, it will not entice us to know the future, end quote. So if, as Arendt says, we shouldn't treat history as following scientific laws, then being prescient starts to look more like a matter of luck and less like a solid basis for building a canon. Are there unacknowledged risks to give thinkers this treatment? Yeah, I think there are a lot of risks to this. <laughs> First, and sort of the point of the piece was you can make something simple much more complicated by applying complicated philosophy to it. I think that's what happened um, in the case of Trump and and the use of Arendt to try to diagnose how Trump's lies functioned. The problem there was not just that people who wanted to criticize Trump for lying were using a philosopher to legitimize their views. You know, we kind of didn't ever really need Arendt's quotes to be able to say that it's bad to have a president who lies, right? Yes. And also, literally, as you say in the piece, not the first president to lie. Shocking. <laughs> no, not the first person to lie. And his lies didn't function like totalitarian lies. If you look at the way Hitler's lies function, according to Arendt, they function like predictions. So Hitler would make a prediction and then would mobilize the totalitarian state to make that prediction a reality. Because that, that, that's what can happen when you have absolute power, is you can, you can basically make whatever you're, you're predicting come to pass. That was not how Trump's lies ever worked. They were never in service of a grand ideology or a grand theory of the world. Um, they were always incidental, tossed off. But yes, he was just sort of inflating the numbers. He wanted to say he had more people at his inauguration than he actually had, or that he's worth more money than he's actually worth, or ultimately that he had more, uh, he got more votes than he actually did, which is very different from, from what Hitler was doing. And also, as you say in the piece, like when he tried to sort of make his lie come true about the results of the 2020 election, it was with lawyers. It's not with yeah. like the army. And it was a completely pathetic attempt. It was a failure. Like if he was actually totalitarian, we wouldn't be talking about this right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, I think if he could have bent reality to his will, he would have loved that. But he did absolutely none of the legwork that he would have needed. He would have needed to spend his entire administration courting military leaders and, and you know, laying the groundwork for an actual coup. And he just didn't do that. He thought he could actually win. Right. On his own merits. And then when he didn't, he was surprised and tried to lie about it. Right. So yeah, so I think mapping, this is something I say in the piece, sort of the thesis, mapping Arendt's framework for Hitler's lies onto Trump, the danger there is it obscures what was actually happening. Trump wasn't telling totalitarian lies, he was bullshitting, as you do in a boardroom and as he did his entire career. Yeah, and I think it's straightforward to look at him and see that that was what was happening. And if you bring in a lot of fancy philosophy, you can kind of lose sight of the picture, extrapolate too far. Um, but you asked, are, are, are there risks 
to bringing in philosophers or to bringing the predictions of philosophers into current discussions of politics. And I, like, I think Arendt would say there are two risks. One is that prediction is bad in and of itself because it acts as though history functions like a science and according to scientific laws which is also the philosophy that totalitarians use. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That that history functions predictably. And she wants to say, no, history doesn't function predictably because history is made up of a bunch of different individual people and people have agency and we're always capable of creating something new. So there's no way to predict, um, to use what's happened in the past to predict the future. And then the kind of second risk is that applying philosophy to Politics isn't straightforward. It's something that bothered her throughout her life because her teacher and one-time lover, Heidegger, used philosophy that she thought was brilliant and, and, and went from that philosophy to Nazism. That, that philosophy seemed to motivate his interest in Nazism and his bad politics. And, and she sort of was really bothered by this. And obviously, <laughs> as a, a Jewish woman who fled Nazi Germany... And she eventually concluded that the problem was really that he was trying, that, that philosophy should kind of be separated from politics and from the, the world of, of political life and political debates. And that Heidegger should have had a space to just think and to not try to, try to bring his thoughts into the real world. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I mean, I think there are a lot of times, you know, as you were saying with Trump, where there's kind of this inchoate idea this lie that the reaction is to kind of try and philosophize it to create sort of like an ideology of it or see that there's some ideology behind it when in reality it's not that complicated that's really just a guy (laughs) (laughs) he's just lying you know he's bumping the numbers because he's been doing that but from real estate, you know, it's it's not, you know, not everything is simple, but also not everything is complicated. There's not necessarily a need to sort of to spill so much ink about the potential meanings of these different things. Like even like Kofivi, like that whole yeah. thing was just like on and on and on. It's like, guys, he's an old man. He fell asleep. <laughs> Stop. But, cool. First of yeah. all, it's not even that funny. Second of all. It's like, why Why are we still talking about this? But I think we're sort of coming to this conclusion that there are different ways to think about politics and philosophy than we do right now, where, you know, because of sort of like the marketplace of think pieces, the think piece typically sort of falls into the same sort of, there's a basic structure of it. And Arendt's work defies that structure. And I think her concepts and her way of approaching these questions is also very different from, you know, the think pieces of today. So could we talk about her process or her ideas that could be useful for thinking in a more independent way, in a more critical way? Things that you wish people would kind of explore or deploy? Yeah. Um, I'm not, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I would recommend that anyone use Arendt's process. <laughs> um, uh, Why not? <laughs> well, she, she made, yeah, her, her works are super idiosyncratic. She made a lot of errors as she was writing. She's not so great on the facts or the, the solid history. And then she's sort of not writing real straight history, but she's also not writing straight philosophy either. 
I don't think it's really something that people should try to replicate. But as, as to ideas that are that I wish people would pick out, um, I, th- I think her her idea about the problem solvers and bureaucracy and the banality of evil, I think, are, are incredibly useful. And and obviously, the banality of evil is the big one that people take from her. And I think that's that's for a good reason. I think it helps to to understand a lot of the things that we think are evil about the world or that are wrong with the world. You know, so much of the world right now is run by problem solvers, people who are trying to figure out solutions to logistical problems rather than asking themselves what's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. That applies to, you know, the Department of Defense. Uh, um, Silicon Valley. <laughs> well, yeah, lots of things in government, but also in the private sector. Competition between companies, you know, at one level, no one's stopping to think about the ramifications for workers or the environment. They're just trying to compete with their competitor. Or even, you know, people who get jobs out of college at places like Facebook or Google and end up furthering the mechanisms that we all think are are not necessarily so great. But um, I think the lesson, sort of most pat lesson from Arendt is that you should always pause and think, you know, I'm in some ways a cog in something larger. And part of systems that are sometimes out of my control and sometimes not. And is this larger system that I am helping to further and helping to build, is it good or bad? And, and to really step back and judge for yourself. Yeah. I mean, and I think when you discuss Arendt's uh, Lying in Politics article, where she's talking about the Vietnam War and people like Robert McNamara and talking about how they, like, he's a problem solver. And look what it has wrought. But also, they wanted to win hearts and minds. They wanted to create an image of the government. And in the decades since that article was published, it's become very clear that the impetus to do image making, as she says, rather than critically engage with you know material conditions, and you can see that in something like what happened with the Iraq War, or you can see it with like the fetishization of an imaginary political center that we are all beholden to and we cannot change anything because those people in the center would just not accept it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a, a hugely useful idea in Arendt. I think image making is, is so, is so prevalent and so part of our world that we don't really step back and think about what it is. Um, but it's also, it, it's also what allows people to lose faith in the government to lose faith in the media, to lose faith in the sort of official organs of truth-telling. Arendt's big thing on, on image-making is that no authority, no matter how powerful, can ever make an image totally foolproof. Because history changes, the facts on the ground change, and the image-makers have to sort of frantically scramble to adjust the image to the new reality. And as that happens, cracks are going to develop, and ordinary people who've taken the initial image on faith are going to have maybe, maybe it's not a fully articulated doubt, but it's, it's a doubt in the back of your mind. Something's not totally right about what I'm being told. And that is dangerous because it can make you, it can make them lose faith in any truth that they're being told. Right. Did Arendt ever kind of engage with conspiracy theories or just, you know, the yeah. sort of the consequence of because obviously I think the so much of you know our current political situation where conspiracy is so widespread or just this mistrust is so widespread is because 
because of the Iraq war, because, you know, George W. Bush used the media. He used every resource available to him to create this image of something that was completely false. And people, you know, are you really going to trust the New York Times after that? Are you really going to trust any sort of traditional media after getting burned so hard? Especially if you had a family member who died in service of this lie? Like, there's so many consequences of this that it's hard to kind of sum them up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Iraq is, is sort of only one example and a particularly great one. Uh, the one I use in the piece, but it, I think it's a longer process than that. It's a process that's been going on since the Pentagon Papers, which she wrote about. The idea that people in government were trying to project a particular image at the expense of truth. And at that point with Vietnam, Arendt thinks we were saved by the fact that we had a combative press. So the image that was being created by the government never had the chance to become monolithic because it was always being questioned and doubted and, and, and challenged. Since then, the press has maybe performed its role less well. It's certainly in the case of Iraq was much less combative, was much less challenging, basically just reported the facts that the Bush administration brought out and many of them totally fabricated. And if you can't trust the government and the media, you do become susceptible to conspiracy theories. And this, this is straight out of Arendt and straight out of her diagnosis of, of what happened in Nazi Germany. If you can't trust the, the New York Times and you can't trust the deep state, right, it, it becomes credible when, when Trump starts talking about the deep state or about fake news or, you know, throwing insults at New York Times reporters and CNN, et cetera, et cetera. It becomes credible and, and he becomes sort of your spokesperson in a weird way. And then maybe you're able to accept the kind of crude idea of alternative facts and not really care whether Trump himself is telling the truth. Or even just watching those debates, like the Republican primary debates, where he would just destroy Jeb Bush <laughs> and be like, the yeah. Iraq war was a terrible <laughs> idea. I hate it. And up until then, you you would never expect a Republican or really, um, you would never expect a Republican to say that. But he did. And it's also, and also what is interesting to me is that you can find these examples on the right and the left of what Arendt is talking about. And if you have someone who is willing to break the image that everyone knows is wrong or confront it in some way, they can have a great amount of power. They can really win people over in a way that even a mea culpa cannot. Yeah. And I think Trump's power comes in a large degree from that, which is totally different from the power of conspiratorial thinking, by the way. Right. And which also, at the same time, took root. And for many of the same reasons, but it, it, they were two distinct paths, and they can't be totally conflated the way people want to conflate them. Because Trump never never totally embraced sort of QAnon or anything like that and tried to, you know, build it into some sort of ideology. Even though he very easily could have. He totally could have. It was it was sitting there, ready-made, ready for him to embrace. And if he were a Hitler, he probably would have capitalized on the opportunity, but he didn't want to. Right. And and I, I think, Arendt, to, to your earlier question, does have a really good explanation for why conspiracy theories are so inviting. She thinks that the modern world, in, in the modern world, people are alienated, you know, which, which a lot of people think, uh, not just her. But she thinks that throughout modernity, this had been happening and the process had accelerated after World War I and a lot of the rapid technological changes of the 20th century. She thought it was hard for, ordinary, for, for a lot of ordinary people to 
find meaning or to know what their place was in the world. They didn't have a kind of cozy worldview to inhabit and to give them meaning. Modern life was filled with arbitrary coincidences and, and people wanted something, a theory or a belief system to knit together the, the facts that were otherwise sort of chaotic. And also multimedia. Because, I mean, I can't help but think of the novel Berlin Alexanderplatz, where all these different, you know, there's there's parts of the radio of neighbors talking of people in the street talking. And then Franz Biberkopf is kind of trapped in the middle of all this, being driven kind of insane and untethering and being alienated um, mm -hmm. by everything. And it's like that's I mean, we feel that way now. But in Arendt's time, that shift was probably even more jarring than it is now because, you know, people are perhaps moving to cities, losing these sort of familial connections, these connections to the land, these things that had existed for hundreds of years and just having that be cut and replaced with what? Again, I'm not, I'm not downplaying the fact that people feel lonely and alienated and depressed and anxious now, but this is a process that's going on for a long time and it's jarring, but it would be particularly jarring for people of that generation. Yeah, yeah. A huge change, you know, very, very rapid change in sort of what was expected out of your life or, or what the structure of a modern life was. All of these things were changing really quickly. And things are changing quickly now too. I think the internet is, is part of that. But I think her point is that if people are lonely and they're sort of hungry for a worldview or an all-encompassing system, it's very easy for bad actors like the Nazis to capitalize on that hunger. Right. And Trump could have very much have, in some, in some ways he did capitalize on it, but he could have capitalized on that hunger a lot more. Right. And it is strange to wonder why. I mean, obviously. I don't know. Would it have been even been illegal for him to be like, yes, I'm Q? <laughs> like I think Trump is not attracted to all-encompassing theories. <laughs> Nothing about him is consistent. He doesn't try to maintain lies even, really. Right. His mind is not attracted to consistency. <laughs> so I think that's sort of a, a basic tension. Right. He lacks the science, <laughs> the precision. Yeah. <laughs> Insufficiently scientific thinker. Yes, yeah. exactly. Shame, shame on him. He should be more rational. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it was nice to spend time with this and, you know... This is the sort of media criticism piece that is needed as opposed to like, you know, did you ever hear that this person did X, Y, Z? Where it's sort of like it's a substantive, you know, sort of getting at the core of what is wrong with discourse. And I think it was really excellently executed. So thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. Produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 